What's up, folks? Happy Monday. This is episode 10 of The Emulsion. That's right. We're in double digits. I'm super stoked about that. Uh, It was a little bit of a push through 1 through 10, kind of hashing things out, making sure everything's exactly how we want it. It's going to evolve as we go forward, but um, happy to be at number 10. I'm your host, Justin Kana, and for the three or four of you that don't know uh, already, this little show is where I chat restaurant and chef and food stuff that mattered to me in the last week or so. I bring up some non-industry stuff towards the end, so you can make a little list of stuff that you want to move on to next if you're listening to this on your relaxation or weekend time, but links to all the stories that I cover can be found in the show notes. Bang, we're crushing these short intros, so let's get into the stories right away this morning. Uh, First story is kind of a multifaceted one. I had found some stories for today, and upon researching them, They're more or less connected in a weird way, if that makes sense. I'm going to kind of begin with an article from Grub Street that that was published this last week, and it's titled, The Real Cost and Benefit of, in parentheses, Temporarily Moving an Entire Restaurant to the Other Side of the Globe. It's kind of a lengthy headline, but the thesis to it um, is basically the logistical implications that come with doing a pop-up um, anywhere else than your own basically hometown or home city or even home country, I guess. And I have to say, Sierra Tishgart, uh, who's the author of this piece, did a super solid job of getting multiple angles to the story as well as researching some solid numbers and managing to get in touch with some really big players in the industry. So I was a really big fan of this article, the way that she did it, um, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it. But in a nutshell, these are like behemoth restaurants with stars and accolades and famous chefs and people want them in their backyard. So it starts basically by covering uh, Olmsted, Greg Backstrom's place in Prospect Heights in Brooklyn, a place that I thoroughly enjoyed last September when I was in New York City. It eclipsed meals at like EMP and Blanca, believe it or not, for me. I really, really enjoyed my experience there. And he shared this article on Facebook uh, so when I saw it, that was one of the reasons that I'm covering it. So big disclaimer there, but that's not really going to affect how I talk about this story. I just want to make sure that you know that, uh, I have a, a kind of little connection to that restaurant in that way. Alenia also has, uh, popped up in Spain. Uh, uh, and that's something that we're going to talk about as well in the story. But for those of you that don't follow Greg, he took Olmsted on the road to Madrid, uh, for a month-long pop-up. So that's also where Alinea popped up. Um, Alinea also did a pop-up in Miami that they talk about in the article. But Nick Kakonis, who is a co-owner of Alinea, and Greg both talk about the financial implications that come with a project like this and the reasons why they basically wanted to do it in the first place. For the Alinea group, Kakonis says, quote, we had 58 employees that we wanted to keep employed while we rehabbed our restaurant. So we talked about this as well uh, in the past on the show. Alinea did a completely revamp of their dining room. Uh, continuing the quote, that's $400,000 a month in payroll, and you can't just fire everyone and reopen four months later and expect to have a great team. Keeping all those people employed would mean that you're going to have to spend $1.2 million in salaries for four months. So for us, it was partly done out of necessity. So the idea for them being instead of uh, firing everyone and 
you know, if we're going to keep paying everyone, we might as well have a little bit of fun with it and uh, pop up in a place where uh, there's a demand for it and there's a way to do it responsibly. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But that being said, I'm continuing a quote now from Kokonis. The Alinea pop-ups we did in Spain and Miami were $1.5 million per month productions. We had 52 European work visas that took six months to process with the Spanish legal team. We had to set up a Spanish corporation and a revenue share agreement and sponsors. The reason that you see sponsors is that we don't want to charge you $1,500 a head for a dinner. We want to charge you $200. You can't just move a restaurant temporarily for six to eight weeks and not have underwriting. End quote. Kokonis admittedly says they lost money with the Spain trip, understandably. If you've been following along with the numbers, they're spending $1.2 million in salaries in four months, and $1.5 million per month uh, is the production cost. So that seems to be the game here, right? If you can manage to get a good enough sponsorship, you're able to operate at a fair enough price. That was the deal that they struck. Uh, Greg's pop-up, for example, in Madrid was 40 euros for four courses. And in my opinion, that's a pretty that's a steal for his food. Uh, but more on that in a second. But there's another point that I want to add here that's uh, the experience that tr- travel adds. Uh, not only to the guest itself or the chef, but the, the staff. And that comes from a quote from Greg, where he says, quote, the reason why I accepted it is that two people that work really hard for us, my two sous chefs, Jenny and Morgan, basically get a get a paid trip to work and spend time in Spain. And I 100% agree with this point. It's a huge selling point for why I stayed as long as I did in Norway and at least Vaca. And that was the opportunity to travel and cook in different places. When you're at a restaurant and you're committed and you can't leave, you know what I mean? Sometimes those desires to leave and try something new are often remedied by cooking the same food, but with a little bit of a change of scene. So you can kind of uh, take care of those angst and uh, desires to move somewhere just by doing an event somewhere where you kind of like itch that travel bug. Um, And of course, you aren't working the entire time if you're there, if you're properly organized. We managed to be pretty well uh, structured so that we could get some cool experiences uh, in as well when we would do guest chef dinners like that. Uh, Chef Chris and I did events in Oslo as well as Paris. It's actually the one-year anniversary from the the time that Chris and I did uh, our dinner in Paris, which is pretty cool. And those were places with Michelin stars. And that's more or less all relating to the next point where she managed to get a hold of Daniel Hume, the chef from 11 Madison Park, where he weighed in saying, quote, today uh, it's important as a restaurant. uh, Let me rephrase that. Today it's important as a restaurant and as a chef to share what you do to a wider audience, not even what you serve, but your philosophies. And that was more or less the goal with Chef Chris going to places um, abroad to to kind of share what we were doing at the restaurant in a place where uh, they were locked down with uh, things like Michelin stars or um, just kind of bring a new perspective to them as well as give us a little bit of a change of scene. So in reaching that wider audience, they did reach out to a guy who is more or less the king of international pop-ups on the grandest scale right now, and that's Rene Redzepi, who is currently doing a pop-up in Tulum, Mexico. So he brought his entire staff with him, as well as hired 35 other locals to help him with the original while the original Noma spaces closed in Copenhagen. So he's got doctor, doctors, schooling, daycare, all of the benefits for his staff that he's managed to build an infra- infrastructure around 
while they're uh, staying in, in Mexico. All of this, strangely enough, is done without sponsors. So that in and of itself makes you kind of rethink the giant price tag that has been going along with this event that has been talked about uh while while the hype has been going on in addition in addition while it's happening he talks about the expenses of paying six cooks to research in mexico for three months prior to the event even taking place the article compares the 600 hundred dollar price tag to other fine dining restaurants in the area like pujol whose menus are a hundred dollars or less so the noma pop-up is already six times more expensive but when you consider the amount of resources that have been kind of like pooled into a project like this, he openly admits that they aren't making a 10% profit. They didn't even like try to, they, they didn't even try. They didn't even want to shoot for 10% profit on the event. And he, he is doing as much as he can to give back. Uh, for example, offering a scholarship fund for Mexican culinary students to come work or having a bar menu for walk-in customers. And literally the last two weeks that they're there, they're doing a free lunch for culinary students. Any Mexican culinary students that want to come to the pop-up in the last two weeks are doing free lunch. Um, They basically built a restaurant from scratch on a beach. And if you compare that to a sponsored event at something like the Mandarin Oriental in Tokyo, where they did Noma Japan, the price was around $340. So still even more expensive than some of the three Michelin star sushi tasting spots. But that being said, they had sponsors to kind of mitigate some of those costs. Regardless, the event that they're doing in Mexico, uh, the article says sold out in 92 seconds, which is a little a little intense. But um, I'm going to get more into that in a second as well. A little coffee sip. Um, I want to slide into another. I want to slide in another story here. If you're interested to see what that $600 buys you, you should check out um, Adam Goldberg's blog, A Life Worth Eating, where he posted an amazing gallery of images of his experience there that happened um, over this past week. It's linked up in the show notes, um, and I just want to say. When I copied the link a few days ago uh, to my little uh, note platform that I do when I kind of find stories for the show. At that time, it had 150 shares for the gallery itself. And for anyone that is against Renee or what he's doing, I'd really like to know another chef that gets a gallery of his food posted by another food blogger. It isn't the chef posting on his own behalf and manages to get it shared 150 times. Even taking away the probable like all the people that worked there probably shared it so that their family could see it. You can't argue Noma's influence. I respect it a lot, and to round out this Grubstead article a little bit, here's a quote by Rene, where he says, quote, traveling like this is addictive. I would like to challenge anyone to set up this idea of annually traveling pop-ups as a sound business model. I do not believe it's possible to do so. You have to do it for other reasons far more valuable than a 10 to 15% profit margin. And this is where I kind of turn it on its head a little bit. So with that quote, I, I, I want to call bullshit on it. I, 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 this might get controversial, but I, I need to get to a point uh, that I covered in a project uh, back in the day when this wasn't even a podcast. It was just me talking to a live camera back in Norway. And that project is called One Star House Party. So if you remember me talking about that show, their whole thesis is they're doing 20 countries in 20 months. And they're doing different pop-up dinners all the way around the world. So their entire model is built around this kind of, uh, to use Renee's quote, uh, traveling pop-up as a sound business model. 
uh, it's run by three individuals who not only do all of that kind of like research of, you know, they don't spend four months researching, they spend maybe like a week or two researching. They uh, keep it short, they make sure it's very exclusive, and they hire staff in the country that they're popping up in or ask for help from an internship program that they they uh, have structured. So basically anyone that wants to experience what they're doing can kind of come and help them, which will also help uh, the project with the costs. Um, they only want to do dinners for about a week at a time, which also makes sure that they're able to kind of keep it logistically sound. They plan for the week and then they're in and they're out. Uh, they take the money from that country and use it to fund the next country. So using spaces like Airbnbs or trains or boats or even setting up a restaurant in the middle of a field, very similar to how Rene Redzepi is doing it, they're 100% not fancy about it. And that's the problem with the big players, to me, is that they're too fancy. Of course, the one-star house party guys aren't making a ton either, but they're making enough to continue the project, and to me, that is insanely interesting. The cost of having a 90-person staff is insane, and with that comes huge challenges with moving and putting your staff up, but it's possible to do if you're small and nimble and can be a little bit ghetto, and that's why I respect something like One Star House Party so much. So yes, Renee has a good point with, I would be interested to see if someone can do it as a sound business model, but you're also factoring in way more costs into something like his project as opposed to this other one that I'm talking about now uh, because people are expensive. And with something like Noma, that is also known, if you remember the story we covered last week with all of their stagiaires that they have and the amount of staff that they employ, it's it, it gets a little bit ridiculous when you have a, a staff that large and want to not only move it across the, the world, but you want to give them all of the benefits that he's giving them. Um, next up is an article that I'd like to point out that Eater did where they talk about the slimming down of restaurant menus. Not the price, but the selections. Jeez, this is a number-heavy episode of the show today. Uh, the punchline here is apparently a research done through uh, Upserve, a restaurant management service that shows 80% of a restaurant's food sales come from 16% of menu items. Pareto's Law, anyone? Any Tim Ferriss fans out there? This this is this is not shocking. It's, it's proven, right? So the Pareto's Law, for those of you that don't know, is um, the more or less the 80-20 principle. So... 80% of your results come from 20% of your actions is more or less the thesis on that. And this, uh, this research basically proves that in, in a not-so-shocking way for someone that's familiar with that law. But the article does throw out some other pretty obvious numbers, uh, the funniest being the hard number that a lot of restaurants are doing a 36% food cost. Uh, a pretty funny figure, considering most are probably thinking that they're doing 25 to 30%, but they don't factor in uh, anything like waste. Um, and that's something that the article talks about, where if you do have uh, 20 menu items and you're only serving like 80% of your revenue is coming from six of them, then it's very difficult when you know that you're getting waste from all these things that you're ending up prepping and that makes your uh, food cost percent go up and that's where you're going to lose that profit margin. Uh, they also dropped the shocker that most restaurants aren't turning profits over 5%, which is something that we've talked about on the show before, and referencing several fast casual spots that are thriving with limited menus. Uh, if you kind of take a look at Made Nice, the uh, 
more or less fast casual spot that the 11 Madison Park uh, guys are doing. That menu is very limited. I think it's only like eight uh, dishes or so, at least eight dishes that they released to the press. Um, and a lot of them are based on very similar uh, uh base ingredients. So things like salads where you use the same lettuce for three or four different dishes um, is very, very smart and something that we also did when we were coming up with the lunch menu uh, at the at the restaurant in Norway, trying to find a way to make sure that not only were you giving people a, a selection because it is proven that people do like a certain amount of choice when they're going out, but also making sure that you're not killing yourself to prep uh, a completely different dish every single time you uh, go out. Uh, an example of that being like using toast as a base and then building different toasts on the same uh, bread. Uh, where was I? Uh, what's my take? I I personally love small menus. I, if, if I'm going out, you don't need to give me 12 things to choose from. Give me four, right? I'd rather eat at a place that's serving four things that they're proud of and excited about cooking and serving rather than a spot that's more or less catering with 12 different menu items. Uh, I'll end this one with a quote that goes something along the lines of the easiest way to fail is to try to please everyone. And I'd really like to know your take on this if you're listening. So go ahead and um, hit me up with a hashtag, uh, the emulsion, and go ahead and tag me in wherever you end up uh either tweeting at me or shouting out on Instagram or commenting on Facebook. I'd be interested to know your take on kind of like l slimming down menus. When you go out, do you like to have a ton of choice? Uh, do you like to go to spots that are super well known for that one or two or three thing menu item list? Uh, I'd be interested to know because um, the market info is interesting and it's also kind of like something that can ultimately cause a restaurant to fail in the end. Um, all right, so for those of you that don't know, I normally script out these shows. If you're watching on Facebook, I'm usually uh, reading from a screen. Um, but for the tail end of the show, I took to Facebook um, because it was a little bit of a slow week uh, for things that more or less mattered to me in news. Uh, but the and it's not something where I want to talk about things that are getting covered. If you look at uh, Eater's homepage right now, uh, where is Eater's homepage? The the headlines that are the, the most popular include, Why do people wait in long lines for craft beer? Walmart invents the Crotilla. Anthony Bourdain calls the unicorn frappuccino the perfect nexus of awfulness. And how Barbara Lynch built her restaurant empire. And all of these things are, you know, not saying they don't matter, but they don't matter so much to me. So I took to Facebook and asked for suggestions on stories, things that you guys wanted to hear about, and that's where we're going to go next. I want to keep this kind of or as organic as possible, so we're going to have some conversation with anyone listening. Uh, but we're going to start with uh, Sebastian, who asks, uh, Paul Gigianti and Drugs in the Kitchen, Daily Life or Rumor? So I pulled up an article um, that was published by Newsmax, Independent and American, published on April 24th, so that was this morning. The headline says, Hell's Kitchen, uh, Chef Polly Giganti, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, dies of drugging intoxication. So let's read this article a little bit. Uh, he was based in Philadelphia. He has died of an accidental drug intoxication. He was 36, found Thursday morning. Urine test shows evidence of drugs in his system. Philly.com is reporting that. Um, let's see. 
Reading, reading, reading. Toxicology results are needed to determine exactly which drugs killed him. These results may be revealed at a later time. Everybody was sad on Twitter. Um, so this more or less relates to a story we covered the other day when we were talking about uh, when I had Dave Hadley on the show when we were talking about marijuana in kitchens. And a big point that he brought up, which was uh, being responsible about uh, more or less the drugs that you're using. I hate to say it like that because I've been a chef that has um, been able to get very far in my career without the use of drugs. Um, I'm not really the person that ever needs it. Uh, I literally have a cup of coffee here that's next to me. Um, that is my only a- a- addiction in life if, if I had to pick one. And it's something that I even control to a weird extent, right? So I take a week, I, I take a day off of coffee every single week. I get that withdrawal headache, and it's just to kind of remind me that I am addicted to coffee. And then I just, you know, go into the next day with a completely new uh, set of superpowers when I have coffee the next day, which is great, and I love it. But uh, I would love to cover this story more. I wish there was more information about it. Um, It happens all the time. It's a thing that's very prevalent in the industry. Uh, Drugs are a thing because it's a high-stress environment. You take people that uh, where timing is key and uh, presentation is key, and there's a lot of, like, variables that go into something like this. I kind of, like, equate it to um, being a rock, like, having a rock show, uh, but different people want different songs at the same time. And you have to kind of like make sure that everything is coordinated so that it comes out exactly how you want it. And at the same time, you don't know exactly what else is happening in other cooks' lives. There's so much that goes along with it. And a lot of people, unfortunately, resort to drugs for those, uh, stress problems. Um, unfortunately, the fact that he overdosed, uh, it sucks it sucks to have to have that happen to someone in the industry but i think there's another question that needs to be asked as far as like how we are treating people the ex- expectations we set for chefs and restaurants and just overall like mental health i think is another thing that is interesting uh and that a lot of chefs that would would turn to drugs would benefit from certain mental health practices uh like meditation, like mindfulness practices, not to get any, get like woo on anyone or anyone like that's kind of against or has tried meditation or something like that in the past. I've certainly benefited a lot from it. Um, It doesn't have to be kind of like this weird kumbaya thing. It's more or less just kind of like checking in with yourself and making sure that everything is, is where it should be. I think that would, is a more productive conversation than talking about, uh, oh, did he overdose or what did he overdose on? Just kind of acknowledging that there is a problem and then presenting a solution that is productive is where I'd like to kind of have that conversation with on the show. But I'd love to know your thoughts. Uh, Go ahead and continue that conversation down below. Next up is a uh, question from a good buddy of mine named Connor who asks, uh, what about restaurant ratings like those health ratings Seattle recently implemented or how about review platforms like Yelp? So I brought up the kingcounty.gov website where they talk about food rating systems and this is more or less applies to 
everyone that's in the restaurant industry. It's something that happened to us in Norway as well, where the new food rating system uh, for the health department uh, switched from letters or stars or anything like that, and they switched to uh, smiley faces or emojis, um, where a very, very happy face was kind of the top of the top. You were really, really good. You were nice and clean. And then kind of like the set, the, the, the smile starts to turn more into a kind of like flat face. Um, places that have the, the completely straight face are the ones that either get shut down or need to kind of remediate their practices. But the reason that it's such kind of a questionable practice here in Seattle is that the restaurants are graded on a curve. So just like you had in school where there was that one asshole kid who got really, really good grades and kind of made the curve really, really high and made it super hard for you, like any other kids who didn't get such good grades to kind of get that nice grade mark, uh, they will take restaurants in a certain neighborhood and then grade them all and then curve that, like make the rating based on a curve. So take, for example, any place that serves food. So the chocolate shop that isn't necessarily making any of their own chocolates. They just have kind of a uh, case where you can come in and buy chocolates and they're completely clean because they're not doing, they're doing little to no production and they're going to get an excellent rating and very little knocks on their, on their, on their marks. And then your place just down the road, there's a small cafe that's also very clean, but however, they might find uh, one or two problems with you. You get graded immediately less on that curve because the place down the like literally down the street that is immaculately clean has uh, quote no or few red critical violations over the last four inspections. And I think that's very interesting uh, and something that doesn't necessarily need to be reconsidered, but it's just something to kind of keep in mind as you go to these places where, yes, the restaurant might have one level down from excellent, which is good, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. You just have to keep that in mind uh, that places are graded on a curve. Um, Seattle does uh, four inspections that they kind of keep on backlog to make sure that uh, the restaurant continues to keep where they are uh, on the critical violations uh, front, making sure that if you had something in your past four inspections ago, that will negate that. So making sure that they're keeping your information up to date. Uh, It's interesting. I haven't gotten health inspected yet here in Seattle. I have done the whole health inspection thing in Norway with great results. We always kept it at a the highest level. I don't remember what the name of it was, but we always kept it at what Seattle would call the excellent level, which is great. Um, I'm very, very proud of that and having that system in place. Um, but overall, I, I just have to kind of experience the entire health department coming practice here uh, to give a little bit more in- information about it. But giving as many facts as possible to make sure that you guys know exactly what's happening. Uh, There's excellent, good, okay, and needs to improve, and that just depends on the number of red marks you get on your your inspection itself. And the next point that he wanted covered was talking about Yelp reviews, Um, and I brought up an article to maybe help me out a little bit uh, from Eater uh, titled, Yelp Goes Undercover to Crack Down on Fake Reviews. This isn't new. Uh, A 2013 study by Harvard Business School indicated that 16% of Yelp reviews, at least in the Boston area, were fake. 
Uh, Amazon also cracks down on people that submit fake reviews and any place where you kind of crowdsource anything, you can expect fake reviews uh, in both in both respects, right? People that are either trying to hype themselves up and give them those five-star rankings or people that really, really, really hated uh, their experience and kind of rally their friends behind them and uh, submit reviews to places to drag them down. Uh, let's see if we can get any more numbers here. Uh, in 2015, a reviewer on a Yelp-like French site was fined more than $8,000 for his negative review on the Michelin-starred Loiseau des Dux in Dijon, where he left days before the restaurant had even opened. So he left that review and got fined pretty hard for it. Crowdsourcing is hard because you get these people that have amazing experiences and usually tell that tell people all about that, like their their friends and their their colleagues and stuff like that. We've talked about this before on the show. But then there's always that that principle that people that had a bad experience are always the loudest. Uh, so it's very difficult to ask those people that had a great experience to leave uh, a review, or even if they had like an above average experience, they're the ones that will not review just because it's the expectation, right? You don't want to, if you pay money for something, you want to make sure that you're getting your money's worth. And if you, you had a good experience, that is, that is the transaction, right? So why, why should you be asked to write a review about something like that? That's more or less the mindset, but if you had a bad experience, you want to make sure that maybe you're doing a service to make sure that not a lot of people go there, but maybe you're also just like venting your feelings and using the internet to do that, maybe getting back at a restaurant in a way that affects them directly. Uh, I personally don't use Yelp to look for any other restaurants or services. Uh, I don't really see the benefit of it because of that reason. You get such a mixed pot of outliers that you can never really manage to find a true, true uh, representation of what what has happened. And it's also sometimes people that don't have the most discerning palates uh, or experience going out to eat, leaving these reviews. Some people might say that that's what they want. They want real people that aren't necessarily food bloggers or food writers or chefs going out to eat and giving them a real honest representation of that restaurant. But for me, I'm much more likely to trust recommendations of friends or other chefs in the industry or food bloggers who more or less do it for a living, making sure that uh, I'm getting I'm getting a good recommendation from someone who is educated enough to make that call. Uh, but this is another one where I'd be interested to hear your take on it because you can go either way on it, right? Uh, it exists and it's thriving and people like places like TripAdvisor also exist for this reason to kind of crowdsource ratings and stuff like that. So, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your take. Uh, but those are both of our viewer questions or audience questions. I hope I answer them. To, I definitely answer them to the best of my ability. If you have any more questions, leave them either in the comments of this show or in the comments where you left them originally. We can continue this conversation next week uh, if you make it a little bit more specific. Uh, and before I get into the non-industry stuff, a quick promo for myself is going to be an Instagram gallery that I posted from a great meal that I had this past weekend at a Seattle spot called Anchovies and Olives, an Italian seafood-inspired pasta joint. Uh, super simple, delicious. We had a great time. Went on a date with a lady. Uh, so check that out on my Instagram. Just search my name, Justin Kana, and you'll find that. Uh, quick viewer comment from Sebastian. Uh 
Is it not better to contact the restaurant directly and tell them about a bad experience? First, everyone uh, have a, uh, let's see, for everyone have a bad day and sometimes they invite you for free just to prove that it was just a bad day. Yes, uh, that we've had that before. I've spoken directly with guests that have had a bad experience and that is 100% the best way to do it. Uh, servers will tell you all the time that it's way better to take one bite of it. There there are articles that that literally tell you as a diner the best practices to do at a restaurant to send your food back or give a bad critique of something. And all of them will say it's better to do it while you're at the restaurant. Uh, That being said, it's easier to do it because uh, you can more or less, as, as restaurant professionals, we're able to remedy the situation while we have you there. It's much easier to do it while you're still with us as opposed to giving us a phone call or giving us a bad review because you were either a little bit passive aggressive on it or you just wanted to make sure that you didn't upset us. It's way a hundred times easier to give that bad review as a conversation with not only your server, but possibly the chef or the management or whoever while you're still at the restaurant before taking to a a crowdsourced site like Yelp or TripAdvisor to share your thoughts. Because sometimes you get a different side of the story or sometimes you were able to give you a new dish or make it again for you or do whatever. We're able to fix it while we still have you there. But when you're typing away on the internet and then post a negative review somewhere else, there's not a lot we can do except for either apologizing on that platform or inviting you back again. Um, so that's my take on, on, on that. Uh, it, is, it is absolutely better as a diner to give that sort of feedback while you're at the restaurant. So I want to chat a little tech news that came out as our last story of the day, some rumors and some releases. Uh, the first is Sony's A9 camera, a $4,500 beast of a speed shooter. Uh, I've linked the full press release in the show notes. You can read all about the different specs that come with this camera. But for those of you that don't know, I switched to Sony mirrorless stuff back when the NEX system was a thing. So that was a few years ago, but they've been crushing it lately, uh, putting out some really, really nice tech, getting a bunch of DSLR shooters to shoot o- switch over to Sony for a multiple different reasons. Uh, I'm super pumped to see what else they have uh, going on and what else they're going to drop this year um, because some of my camera tech is getting a little bit old, but it's also nice to see uh, the company that I... uh, When you're in cameras, you kind of have to stick with a certain camera company because they create lenses that are specific to certain bodies and making sure that you get with a company that you're super behind is important. And for me, Sony is that company. Uh, also, has anyone seen the models that they've released for the iPhone 8 or iPhone X or whatever they're going to call it? There's a fingerprint reader in the screen, so the home button's going away, and the camera is like vertically oriented on the back. Uh, there's no bezels at all. It's it's crazy. But those same articles are also saying it's going to be super hard to get it. So like, it, it's going to be so hard to get that you're going to have to wait. Basically, if you're lucky enough to get it before 2018, you're going to be a pretty pretty lucky person uh, because they're going to be that high in demand. Um, but if anyone's seen it, I'd be interested to hear your take on the, the new iPhone coming out as well. 
So with that, this has been episode 10 of The Emulsion, and regardless of if you've been watching live here or if you're on the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, I want to thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode or want to be a part of the conversation, I ask you to leave a comment about today's question of the day regarding anything that we covered, but maybe more specifically the menu slimming down structure and how you kind of enjoy your your menu when you go out. Go ahead and share this podcast on one of your social networks. I know there's someone that you work with or know that could use a little bit more industry knowledge in their life. Go ahead and tag me and use hashtag the emulsion, and I'll be sure to say hi to them and to you as well. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks in advance. I'm Justin Kana. Have a good one.